Do it. Do it. Do it now. Get to the chopper. What we what we do, Batman? Chase the villain or save the boy? Your heart is weak. That's why this day is mine. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna talk about coming from Devil's Jew. It's something you wanted if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh. Hey, 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 nonny, nonny, it's me, Mark. I'm dialing in from uh, Medieval Times to present to you Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe pom- Pomets podcast. Um, it's the po- comics podcast uh, all about G.I. Joe. If you're new to the show, you can find out the details over on the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Uh, we're continuing our look at the disavowed era today with the Wraith story, the backups from issues 31, 32 and 33 from Devil's Due in 2004. As we've been uh, reading the main stories, we've skipped past these uh, with the intent to try and cover them all in one go. Uh, and joining me on this look back, G.I.J. J. Cordray. Howdy, Joe fans. And out of order today, it's a real American Tim, Tim Finn. Hello, fans, and hello, Mark. <laughs> and hello, listeners. Um, did, was that a little bit uncanny, me introducing you um, in a different order to the way I normally do it? I wanted to make a, a jocking toe reference from, <laughs> from the syllables that you transposed earlier, but I couldn't mm. figure out how. Mm. hate that. hate that when there's a joke right there. Oh, there's a joke, but it's okay. It wasn't oh, a, just wasn't a great one. <laughs> but we, we've talked about All before right. how important consistency is, so so that's fine. <laughs> We're dads. We like we like bad jokes. Sometimes when uh, sometimes when you um, uh, when you have us talk about the covers, sometimes you toss to me, and sometimes you toss to Jay. So there's a little bit of uh, I wouldn't say inconsistent variety. There's some variety <laughs> on the on the on the format of the show. I've got to keep you on your toes. Sometimes, you know, the the episodes, um, the they're they're two different, um, uh, they're two different arrangements for our jingle at the end. And I do, I try and do one with the episodes about um, the IDW series with you, Mark, and I try and do the other with Jay. It's pretty subtle. Never mind. Cut this. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, we all do that. Probably, like, there's probably little things that. You know, sometimes the first line is nobody beats talking Joe. Sometimes the first line is nobody beats talking Joe. Wow. <laughs> Someone's been thinking about, about let's, this. Let's talk about. <laughs> yeah. How often do I get to sing a G.I. Joe jingle that's not connected to a G.I. Joe podcast? I'm I, guessing I, a lot. A lot. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> I can see Tim at a stoplight busting out with a pulverizer jingle or something because the car in front of him won't go faster. It's more when I'm doing dishes. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta scrub these pans. Um, I, I, I had a bit of an exchange with uh, Roger Taft, who is uh, one of the, the men behind the Kickstarter after Action Report. Uh, volume two uh covering the devil's due era which uh, is live on kickstarter at the moment 
about them uh, joining on on the show and I was, I was saying do you want would you like to maybe come on one of the issue discussions or maybe come on just a sort of or maybe just more of a dedicated discussion just about the kickstarter without without doing all of the review of a specific issue and he and he said uh, you know it's, it's all good but uh, he wouldn't like to uh, make fun out of devil's due um, because you know being respectful as, as the author covering the, the series and I was going to reply, what, make fun? We never do that. Uh, and then I started thinking of more and more examples where maybe the definition of making fun uh, does occur. So um, I feel like you guys are a bad influence on me because I might say something, I might say something critical like this smoke looks like uh, butter. A cheese sculpture. Right. And then you guys make a jingle out of it. Uh-huh. And then someone <laughs> listens to the show and they, they're like, man, that Tim guy like really hates the coloring and devils do because he sang that song about the butter sculpture. And uh, I think um, I, I also am trying to keep my my comments to thoughtful and not mm-hmm. quote making fun. But yes, I guess I guess sometimes I have said something and then you two. Um, <laughs> chuckle and <laughs> now it's the definition of making fun we're leading you astray by laughing at your jokes w- would anyone be surprised that's not the first time someone said i was a bad influence on <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i'd like to i'd like to think that generally we try and be respectful we try and be objective and you know the reason that we're doing this is uh you know coming from a place of uh, you know a good place of of love for uh gi joe comics uh and the surrounding ephemera uh, yeah we wouldn't we wouldn't spend all of this time you know doing this if we if we didn't uh, if we didn't like it yeah. yeah you guys think that i don't love devil's do coloring in 2004 there's a lot of coloring I don't like in all of comics in 2004. Oh, just not, just not yeah. ho- hosting those podcasts. <laughs> I thought, yeah. I thought you're, you were sure. This is, this is, is a, yeah. I mean, it's an in- industry wide thing for sure. We're just poking on devils do because that's what we're reading. And I don't think Tim that you even need to add the caveat of 2004 <laughs> going by yeah. <laughs> conversations. Okay, so today we are talking about the Wraith backup stories appearing in issues 31 through to 33. Uh, so let's have a look at the creative team um, via me flicking to the right page. Uh, so the first story, uh, Phantom, is it called uh, all? Yeah, they're all called Phantom, Phantom part one, part two, part three. The story is by Brandon Joa. The art is by Talent Caldwell. The inks are by Jason Gorda and the colors by Christina strain so they've got chapter breaks which i believe were all used as covers as as well and then each one of these is one two three four yeah just four pages each or so isn't it so is is that the same three one two three four yeah so it's it's only good grief is it only 12 pages long this story yeah so i said it wasn't very long interestingly this episode is going to be 120 minutes <laughs> <laughs> okay i'll i'll just dial back and and sort of give a slight plot breakdown a three part of three scenes three different locations so so part one a nightclub lillian and alexander introduce themselves to wraith in the nightclub and propose a job part two it's the breakout at the prison 
uh, Scrap Iron and Major Blood are rescued from the prison by Wraith. He demonstrates his uh, his predator suit with invisibility features. They you know, shoot at some G.I. Joes and make a getaway. And part three is another change of scenery. Armada and Alexander in kind of the, the lead roles. Again, they're making a presentation of Wraith's capabilities to a boardroom full of Destro's competitors and the payoff being that Wraith makes an appearance and is about to wipe out the competition. Yeah, a lot a lot happening in uh, the space of just three sets of four pages. I did a bit of digging into the background of this so so I'll, I'll give you share some of my intel. So um there was a lot of hype about uh, this this issue these issues when uh, they they came out and they sort of made quite a big splash of trying to make it something special for the, for the GI Joe series and it was covered on various sites at the time. So this is a blurb that appeared. Devil's Due Publishing has chosen Aspen Studios to design Wraith, a um, new major villain for the GI Joe comic book series. The studio will create a three part backup story and is happy to expand the relationship between the two publishers. Talent Called will be will be providing the designs for the character, as well as art for the backup stories and two covers. Michael Turner will be illustrating the cover for the finale, which we talked about last episode, at the cover. I remember all of this promotion at the time, and I was torn. On the one hand, it was exciting that Devil's Do had something to trumpet Hey, everyone, pay attention. Uh, This is a big deal. And here's a, if not a popular artist, an up and coming artist who's affiliated with a popular artist. And Devil's Due was making a big deal of of something, you know, like an anniversary issue, the the death of a major character, um, a crossover, signing an artist to do some covers, like something that brings some heat. So Mm. that was exciting. And it did not look desperate. But to me, I felt a discrepancy because if the point is to get a finger quotes hot artist to do G.I. Joe, they should do the main series. They should do a run of issues. And this these, this three-part backup, it wasn't a stunt, but it's like, if you're going to do this, go all the way. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it felt like this was the sort of modestly budgeted halfway all the way you know it's like okay well this this was my thinking well they can't afford to farm out three whole issues to top cow you know uh and did aspen exist did aspen exist yet yeah 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 they refer to aspen in okay this, sorry in this all right blurb. Thank you. So, uh, so far, farming out the story to to Aspen, but we can get them to do a couple of pages, mm. and you know, a lot of story is told in four pages, four pages, and four pages. The other thing was the the thing that I, I did feel cynical about this was like, okay, either Michael Turner is too busy, is not interested in drawing these twelve pages, or is too expensive. Can we get mm. the guy that people might confuse for him? <laughs> yeah. Like, how about the young talent who draws just like him, who Michael Turner, um, I don't know if he discovered him, but he, like, I remember, I think it was in Wizard Magazine, like when Talent Caldwell 
was signed to Aspen, um, there was some kind of blurb or article and it was, it was like, you know, like, oh, this is my assistant now. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, like the Wildstorm stuff. Like, oh, we had a talent search or I saw this kid's work online or I saw this kid uh, at a convention. It was something like that. Yeah, I've got I've got a bit of background. It's so so Talent Caldwell went to uh, Charlotte NC Comic Con in 1997 to show off his artwork for the first time. And the people that he showed it to told him that he should become more like the established artists, Michael Turner and Mark Silvestri. And he took the words to, to heart and, and sort of worked that into his style. So uh, when he took a bit of a, a, a career tangent and did some music videos, he apparently did uh, worked on the music video for Destiny Ch- Destiny's Child Bugaboo uh, as, a, as a dancer. And but so but after that he, he went back to to drawing and at uh, a comic con he was discovered by uh, Michael Turner and also showed off his stuff to Mark Silvestri and in January two thousand he started working as a professional artist initially doing background work on Fathom and then moving into more books by Top Cow uh, and then he joined Michael Turner when he formed Aspen Comics. Okay, that's, thank you. That's that's what I was one-third misremembering. So my feeling at the time was, if you're going to do this, do a whole issue, do a whole run of issues, do a, a side miniseries, get Michael Turner. Talent Caldwell is talented, and, and he's, a, he's a fun fit for this story. But cynically, it felt like, Let's get the guy who draws just like Michael Turner because he's less expensive or he's he's available and people won't know the difference. Mm. And particularly if the the sort of press release was like Michael Turner's company is going to work on this G.I. <laughs> Joe thing. It's like, oh, oh, is Michael Turner drawing it? No, <laughs> but not, yeah. not it's but it's whispered like, no, no, the other guy, the new guy is going to draw it, you know, like, um. You know, like uh, you're reading Marvel's original Infinity Gauntlet and you're thinking, oh, George Perez. (laughs) But, you know, George Perez overbooked that summer because he was drawing a Marvel event and a DC event. And I think sometimes we forget George Perez didn't draw the second half of the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, Ron Lynn did. Oh, I didn't forget. Right, yeah. And it's it's quite (laughs) handsome. It's quite quite handsome. Uh, It gets the job done. It's it's Lim's best work. And... And, but it's not uh, George Perez. But you know, but it's not George Perez. And also, like that was in prop, that was in progress. So they needed to get someone. This wasn't like, oh, we're planning something for later. So I've always had mixed feelings, knowing that we were going to eventually get <clears throat> to this story on the podcast. I was interested to finally read it because Talent Caldwell stuff is a certain kind of hot and fun and sexy and and flashy. But I, I still remember those feelings of like, no, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> from two thousand <laughs> from two thousand four. Okay, so so yeah, in this same blurb, they talk a little bit about uh, where this character came from. So, uh, as I hear it, you know, from from Brandon's previous interviews, he sort of came up with the idea and was just going to, you know, you know, talk to um, Josh Blaylock about including this this new character in the book. And he thought, no, don't just don't just include him. Let's make it let's make it into a whole uh, whole thing. So uh, he thought it might make a bit of a splash and, and get some new uh, readers on the book. So uh, Josh Blaylock says, Brandon pitched this character to us over a year ago and we've just been waiting for the right time. By bringing the Aspen guys on board, 
we're sure to have a hit on our hands and create a character that will be around for years to come. It's going to rock. Um, <laughs> and when asked about working on this, uh, this project, Talent Caldwell said, it's really exciting to be working on the project. I've always been a huge Joe fan and being asked to design a new major character like this is really flattering. I've been uh, wanting to do some work on G.I. Joe for a while and this special story wound up being the perfect fit. It's been a lot of fun and I hope everyone enjoys what we have in store for them. Uh, I found another uh, creator quote, quote as well, which I'll, I'll just cap this uh, this creator section on. Uh, Tim Seeley says uh, about working on G.I. Joe. So far, Wraith isn't my favourite. Damn you, Talent Caldwell, and your dis- detailed costumes. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of, you know, we've talked about it before. There's certain There's certain costumes that have got a lot of detail going on. And and when you when you, it's being drawn by someone who's not the creator, maybe just doesn't uh, sing in the in the way that they originally did. So the likes of some of those designs from uh, Brian Hitch in the Ultimates and those kind of things, when when there's a lot of detail going going on there, and it's and it's uh, being done by an artist who doesn't play in that same style, um, it, it looks just a little bit different. I thought the art in this was pretty good. Um, I'm not real familiar with with talent Caldwell's work. Cause I haven't, um, I think I have the, uh, the fathom stuff, but honestly, I, I've never read it or well, other than, you know, maybe just skimming through it. Uh, so I'm not, and I, I can't think of anything else that, of his that I've, that I've read really. I, I'm familiar with the name cause he's been around for a while, but, um, I thought the art was pretty good. It's, it's hampered again, as usual by the, the C word, but it, it tells <laughs> the story and there's some, I mean, there are some really good panels, Again, the, the coloring is, is kind of screwy because and this this is where it, it does affect the story for me in, in a way other than just Ugh, that's that's not nice to look at. Uh, in the very first page, when um, Alexander and uh, Armada, they call her in here, go into the, uh, the dance, the nightclub or whatever it is, her hair looks like it's blonde and she looks like a blonde white girl. And she looks like that throughout this whole thing. And that's not the way that she was presented at all before. Wasn't she um, a person of color? Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it's the lights, but her hair and stuff, especially that first panel, she looks like a, you know, cheerleader or something. She, I'm, I'm like, I think it's just the, the, I think I think the highlights go too far from the yeah. like dance club ceiling lights. Yeah, it's like like sort of that ultraviolet kind of black light kind of stuff, maybe. You know, maybe they're trying to do that of the color just acts a little bit weird in that ultraviolet. Yeah, it could be because the other girls are real wacky looking, too. But but that's the thing. It just kind of threw me because I was like, well, who is this? And then, you know, she says uh, Alexander, I think. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, this is uh, this is Alexander and Lillian. And I was like, why does she look so different? <laughs> but I do like this. I, I like the I really do like uh, just this whole setup of uh, Destro's son and and. Lillian, this character going into this place to recruit this guy. And I, I like that the um, Brandon gives him character that I don't know. It, it seems to, to come across to me anyway, it, you know, during while they're talking to uh, to Halifax here, Armada's kind of, uh, oh, a little more outgoing and a little more uh, brash, maybe. Whereas it seems like Alexander's a little more measured, like he's probably 
comes across in these scenes like he's a he's more of his father's son than he has seemed to be before. Like he's really kind of holding back when they're talking to him and she's more out there. So it does kind of give you a good dynamic of, of how these two characters could act and, and could behave going forward. So I think that this does a lot, not just to build Halifax, but just in these few panels here that we see of, of Alexander and, and Lillian, that it does a lot to flesh them out too. And I like that. Mm, over the course of just a few pages, there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a great line there when, um, Alexander introduces himself. He says, Charlie, my name is Alexander, and this is my associate, Mistress Amada. Reply, Mistress, haha. <laughs> yeah. is, is that your internet name, Amada? That's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I know, I was uh, like, why would he introduce her like that and not just say, like, Lillian? But yeah, well, I, I guess it's, you know. I like imposing. it. I, I kind of like when they have a character that, that they'll interchange names with, you know, once in a while. It's like, Certain people will call so and so this, whereas other people would address them this way. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna comment on the color for a moment because in the aggressive computer coloring of the mid 2000s, I like this coloring. This is Christina Strain who colored Runaways for Marvel, the whole Brian Kavon, Adrian Alfona run, and mm. and colored World War Hulk, and. It, it is it is in many ways similar to the color that happens by Jeremy Roberts in in these issues the the non backup the main story or I guess Brett, Brett R Smith and Jeremy Roberts subtly there is a, a better job of separating elements character from character foreground from background and scene to scene uh, and there's though there are a lot of gradients and effects there is less they are they are much less arbitrary. And so it is busy and it is aggressive, but it is uh, it is smarter. It is applied more smartly. So I do like it, and I don't have a problem with it. I like this color artist, and I like her work. Um, she's I just think it, it looks dark, like like it's printed dark. You know what I mean? Like if you put this in Photoshop and just adjusted the level or the brightness, hmm. it would do well, a lot toward, well, toward um, bringing in, out uh, the, the clarity. In part... In part two, uh, yeah. on page yeah, that's what I'm looking at right now. On the final where they're page, out of the prison. On the final page of part two, once they're outside in daylight, you know, I, I think that's that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, um, your your comment about sort of not knowing who's who on the first page. I think a lot of that is also down to seeing the younger Destro and Armada out of costume. I don't ever know who any GI Joe character is when they're out of costume. <laughs> Like if it's if it's Storm Shadow and it's the right artist who can draw him like a Japanese man, Rod Wiggum, uh, Scarlet Snake Eyes, you sometimes get some cues because Snake Eyes has glasses, right, or blonde hair, or his face is in shadow. But sort of you name a Joe, and you know, like yes, in a previous episode we talked about you know barbecue and airtight having like particular hair or like a cue, like if barbecue's in his civilian clothes. Maybe it's a red shirt, but, you know, Grand Slam, Dial Tone, Flint, Duke, whoever, if they're in, if they're not in their costume, like I can't tell who they are. And so later in the story, when Major Blood and Scrap Iron are broken out of prison and they're just wearing their orange. Okay, like I know that's Major Blood because he's got two important cues, right? Certain mustache 
and an eye patch. I know who that is, but we've never seen, we've barely seen Scrap Iron in the comic anyway, but I don't think we've ever seen him without his uh, helmet, except for the like cover B of this very issue. So when I get to that scene, uh, I think it's the narr- I think I think it's the dialogue that has to tell me who that is, even though the story previously told me like who they're going to break out. So anyway, in terms of the art, Talent Caldwell, this is a thankless job because uh, Jura is cramming a lot into just four or five pages, and yeah. Caldwell pulls it off, and he manages to draw you know people and and some weapons and tech you know this this complex wraith costume, but. Talent Caldwell is doing the thing that Michael Turner does, which is the thing that Mark Silvestri was doing at the time, which a famous comics writer described to me as, quote, shiny girl. <laughs> this, this writer said to me, uh, like, ah, oh, there's that like modern shiny girl style. And I think of sort of every Aspen cover ever published and a lot of Top Cow covers and interiors where you have this particular kind of like skinny quote babe with like big doe eyes and like shiny hair. Some of this is the, is in the coloring. Some of it's in the inking shiny hair and like often a lot of skin and poses that are a little bit like how female models pose in, you know, like swimsuit photography, as opposed to how a like actual superhero or soldier or male character in that same comic would pose. And they're a little tall and they're a little or a lot skinny. So if if Caldwell's doing, if he's, if he's, I don't want to say aping, if he's taking on an affect of Michael Turner's style, and Michael Turner already, like, is drawing... Anyway, so what I see here in this story is um, a slight cartooning. You know, everyone's got big eyes, and everyone's got kind of big hands and big fingers, and... The, the acting and the poses all work. The, the fight stuff works. And half it is this challenge of Caldwell cramming a lot of story into just a few pages, right? All the pages have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six panels in them, right? Uh, no splash page, right? But also Caldwell, kind of like Tim Seeley in the main issues, Caldwell doesn't draw a lot of perspective, he draws a little bit of two-point perspective, but he's avoiding three-point perspective at all times. And there are a lot of straight-on shots. And um, it's never unclear, but it's often not as dramatic or as, as exciting uh, as it could be. And a little bit of it feels like this thing where he, he composes for the character in the foreground and then figures out the background as an afterthought. And... I don't think that's how you draw comics because because you are you are framing panels and you're framing pages and you're staging a scene. So it's exciting that a quote hot artist did this story, and the story I like the story I like Drew's script and I like the information that gets imparted and the you know the character movement and the introduction of Wraith and I used to think I hated Wraith because I was bitter about <laughs> Aspen doing this backup story and then like. Some, you know, the Devil's Due made a new character and then it became an action figure. And I thought, no, don't sanctify Devil's Due for these comics I don't like. But I wasn't. I hated him because Larry didn't create him. Right. And 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 uh, I have to let that kind of feeling go because G.I. Joe is very big. It's been around for a long time. And, you know, whether I agree with it or not, Larry wasn't writing these comics. So um, 
So I think Caldwell does a good job and uh and I think he he manages the story well, but as an example, on the second to last page of part 2, there's a really big panel, the first panel, where it's sort of the reveal of Wraith. It's like a it's not a pinup, it's not a splash page, but it sure wants to be. And it's a really <laughs> big panel and then the two Joes react and then there's this very small panel which is clear but is really small where Wraith shoots the three Joes and then the next panel that should have been the bigger panel yeah yeah like there's still this and and some of this is like some of shiny girl art is like post image comics art where you have a lot of pages that look and work more like covers and less like storytelling pages right it's like you flip the page and there's a a splash of a character like wolverine or cable or rip claw from cyberforce like just sort of standing there or like with with their legs spread and they're like weapons drawn or their fingers drawn and maybe they're saying something maybe they're not and it's it's to punctuate a moment but it's taking up valuable real estate and there's a little of that happening here in this panel in chapter two where wraith says oh sorry it's like no i don't need a reveal of the story doesn't need to slow down it's like okay yes we there needs to be a moment where we reveal that he he didn't get injured or damaged from Grand Slam's shot in the previous uh, panel. But this panel of him saying sorry, it's it's too much of a like I'm going to sell this page of original art, and there needs to be something like eye popping about it, and a little less of like an over-the-shoulder shot from the Joe's perspective where he's coming out of the smoke and he's undamaged and they're saying, oh no. The big pop on this page should have been the panel of the Joe's getting shot. Because when I was reading it, I was like, holy crap, he just wasted those Joe's. Yeah. And then, you know, two panels later, they're like, oh, they're dummy rounds or whatever. But I was like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm totally with you. If, if you're going to have a big panel, story-wise, that should be the big beat. You know, and it probably should have been at the bottom of the page. And then you flip the page and say, OK, they're not dead. Yeah, I, 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 I'm happy to argue the case on this one. I, th- I, I get exactly where you two are coming from. But at the heart of this, this is the Wraith origin slash Wraith reveal story. That's kind of the purpose. It was so serving to make him, you know, reveal him, make him look cool. And I guess that's the purpose of of that particular panel. It's like here he is, yeah. isn't he cool? But the, in terms of story terms, that that little bit there where he shoots them uh, on panel what three, and then they find out two panels later that they're non lethal rounds. Uh, they're non they're yeah hornet's nest rounds, non lethal. Thanks so much. <clears throat> and, and that's a little slight bugbear with me that it happens in GI Joe. It happens elsewhere, but. It's the named characters, for whatever reason, get taken out with non-lethal means, but the anonymous guards are <laughs> just wiped out. Yeah, if those weren't Joes, they'd have just been killed. It says 80% of the guards are already dead. And um, in the last page of the first part, it shows him on the initial kind of prison break-in and, and, he's, and they're getting you know, shot to the back of the head with a silencer or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know why it is that they're left letting off the Joes quite so much here. It's a good point. I have another example of Caldwell's storytelling leaning too much towards sort of 
pinup and not enough towards storytelling. And it's the second to last page of the whole story. So in, in chapter three, the second to last page, the top panel, um, Armada in three boxes is narrating how deadly Wraith is. And the panel shows Wraith holding something big. I don't know what it is. And, and fighting one, two, three, four, five sort of anonymous uh, soldiers that are all in green. And you can't see any of their hands. And yeah. it's not that it, this is not like, oh, Talent Caldwell doesn't want to draw hands. So he's cropping them out. It's that he's trying to balance drawing Wraith up close so you can sort of enjoy a cool drawing of Wraith. Because if you make him very, very small, then you don't quite get to see him. But if he's single-handedly taking out all these soldiers with something big and heavy, if there are supposed to be other soldiers that are unconscious or dead lying all around here, if they are desperate and their weapons have been knocked out of their hands, if they're holding weapons and their weapons are ineffective, the camera, quote unquote, needs to pull back five or 10 feet so we can actually see what they're doing. Like, are they holding weapons and firing at him? Are they holding weapons and they're all smoking because they're out of rounds did they drop their weapons so again it's not that he doesn't want to draw hands i think he does want to draw hands there are lots of hands in the story but in terms of storytelling the camera needs to pull back to show more of the space and more of the arrangement of where characters are in relation to each other and what is this thing that wraith is holding and this is a general comment i have on a lot of comic artists in the last 30 years who lean more towards drawing the exciting, hot, sexy thing and less the like nuts and bolts storytelling logic thing and or they're new and they aren't as confident in drawing environments, perspective and backgrounds. And I need to know more of sort of where these characters are like in, a, in, in relation to each other in that panel. And yes, I'm spending a whole three minutes talking about one panel in this very, very short story. But to me, it perfectly encapsulates a new artist's weakness. And as exciting as it is to have a hot new guy drawing this G.I. Joe backup, I'm always leery when someone new draws my favorite book because they may not be quite ready for prime time. Mm. I think that page uh, as a whole just looks really rushed. But let me go back. Since we're talking about Caldwell, uh, let's look at uh, the last page of the second chapter where he, uh, they've shot the Joes and then uh, third panel. I love this page. The more I look at this, there's so much about this page that I like. There's there's only two, there's only two things I really don't like. One, two, three, four. The fourth panel, I think the girl's face and neck is a little off, uh, but that's minor. In the very last panel, I'd have pulled the camera back so we'd have seen the entire vehicle and, you know, a little more. But there's just there's a lot of little subtle things in here that work really, really well. I love panel three, just her body language and and her pose. Uh, I think a couple episodes ago, Tim talked about contrapposto and it doesn't really fit here. But if you can you can see her spine is twisting. She's like she's she's kind of half in the truck or whatever it is and and twisting and turning back to him and almost certainly he used photo reference for this but either way i mean it looks good and then when, once you're inside the vehicle yeah they're all kind of you know one point perspective but you're in a car so you know 
the the way he's got the characters work, the perspective in that the fourth panel, it all works really well. Wraith looks like he's just about the right size away from her. You can tell that he's in the passenger seat. She's in the driver's seat. Move to the next panel. Those two are clearly in the back seat. I love how Major Blood's head is tilted just a little bit and his eye is pointing forward. You can tell he's kind of like, you know, who are you? He's his body language says I'm a little suspicious. Wraith is sitting there and he's just looking back with his eyes. And it's like that all works so well for me. This page is is great. I'm I, I'm just sitting here staring at this. It's, it's really, really, uh, really big on it. Kudos to, to Caldwell for his body language and and little things like where's the eyes pointing, you know, and just that tilt of Major Blood's head. All of it worked really well. Um, I have a comment about the inking, and it's it's less about Jason Gorder, who inks this specific story, and more about what I'll call the post-Danny Mickey inking style in all comics. But I guess my, my sort of representation of my example is going to be the first page of the second chapter, the third panel, where... Major Blood and Scrap Iron and Wraith are, are running and Major Blood has a machine gun. The inking of his prison uniform, sort of the, the top part of it that's hanging down in his pants. And then you can see a little bit of it on the on the next page, the big panel with Wraith punching. Danny Mickey, who did not ink the story, the earliest stuff I know that he was inking was... Um, Youngblood Strike File uh, over Rob Liefeld in... 1992 was the miniseries that came, well, I'd say after the original uh, Youngblood miniseries, but I don't think the original Youngblood miniseries had had finished yet. And uh, Mickey uh, Has got it finished yet? Up. No? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it is. In fact, it has been uh, rewritten and recolored uh, and published as a hardcover, but even that's like 12 years ago. Um, Danny Mickey has inked some Liefeld and some Top Cow and I think some Spawn at Image uh, and inked a lot of Marvel and has inked a little bit of uh, DC in the last He's few years. He's done a lot of stuff with Joe Casada. He did the Father miniseries, I think, with Casada, didn't he? Yeah. And when when I see his inking, I see like the thinnest lines possible. Like he's inking everything with a micron pen. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because printing has gotten so good that you can do that, right? If you inked with such a thin line in the 80s, uh, and, you know, comics were printed with plastic plates on newsprint. Some of those lines just wouldn't show up. You know, like you look at Arthur Adams, all of his like X, X-Men annuals in the 80s, and you can see like the limits of printing technology. You know, there's so much more detail in that than, you know, like a John Buscema or, a, you know, Jack Kirby or a Steve Ditko, you know, whatever, like sort of house style Marvel 60s, 70s, 80s. So partly because of image and partly because of, uh, I think, Marvel reacting to image, a lot of artists in the 90s and after start inking like all the image comics or the Marvel comics that are sort of post-image. And in these, in these two panels that I'm pointing out here, what I see is this like micron pen approach where there is a very, very thin line that gets a little thicker. And then there's a tiny, tiny gap, like a millimeter, and then a dot. And it's interesting. I don't like it. I find it 
I find as a distracting. texture. Yeah, it, it's distracting. It's a little, it's a little, it's a little too noodly. Um, it's almost like McFarlane's inks. I mean, McFarlane or Capullo, when you look at like when, when he first started working on Spawn, it just, I mean, McFarlane was really detailed before, but a lot of that stuff to me just is over inked. I mean, like you said, there's just so much little, like you said, line dot dot, you know, why is there a line and then a dot, you know, or, or, or there's just why, why'd you break that line? It's like, there's more variation than there yeah. needs to be. That's, that's, that's me yeah. doing it in a sentence. On yeah. page four of part one, there's a security guard's uh, face. He says, oh, God, Frankie, oh, man, who's there? Um, I looked at that and I thought, oh, that's a very McFarlane face. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Jason Gorder. Ramos, too. Jason Gorder. Uh, I mean, he's he's inking this the way he's, quote, supposed to. And he's I think he's inking this the way that talent Caldwell's pencils want to be inked. And if you had you know, like Randy Emberlin, who inked a lot of Marvel G.I. Joe or, you know, Tom Palmer, you know, like, like a, a Randy standard. Green. Yes. Uh, Dan, Dan Green, like a lot of. Dan, yeah, that's it, Dan Green. Uh, a lot of 70s, 80s, 90s Marvel inkers. Uh, this would have a completely different look. And I'm not saying that. I mean, the whole point of this back, these three backup stories, it's like, no, this is supposed to be hot like hot comics, you know, like post-image, Aspen, flashy, hot. So uh, I can't argue, like, I'm, I'm not saying Jason Gorder inked this badly. I'm saying Jason Gorder is inking this in a style that I see and I can appreciate because it takes talent, but it's not my preferred style of inking. I think it's, I think it's busier than it needs to be. And I think some of that comes from I don't want to say a lack of technique, but it might be a little easier to ink, you know, like dash, dash, dot, space, dash, dash, than to with precise brush or pen control with your hand, your wrist, yeah. your arm, whoosh, one line. Hmm. I, I spy, spy with, with my, my little eye. eye. I, I've got a sort of semi-I spy. It's a, it's a sort of behind the scenes story, page one. The Alexander and Lillian walk into a bar. It's not the beginning of a joke. Well, it sort of is the beginning of a joke. And uh, they're asked what <laughs> they want to drink. It says, uh, what's it for you two then? And he says, something cold. Make that too. Uh, but this in the, in the first iteration of this script, apparently Jawa wanted them to go into the bar and order Lambic. Very specifically, you know, you thought it was a cool drink, whatever. But in the editing process, Josh Blaylock said to him, don't have that. No one's heard of that. And and Joe replied, so there's an invisibility suit in this story being introduced. But it's his, <laughs> but it's, it's his drink choice that you find unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, um, I, wanted to, I want to talk about the ending. Okay, the ending. So uh, one one more one more frown at uh, Talent Caldwell's <laughs> storytelling. Um, last uh, frown, Tim. The, these these four last frowns. Last frowns at the bar, please. All right. The, la- the last <laughs> last call for frowns. <laughs> the last two the last two pages of the whole story in chapter three. Caldwell introduces these four people who Armada is presenting Wraith to, like she's gonna you know sell the sell the tech or something like that, and. These four people are, I don't know, standing, sitting at a table, 
Caldwell doesn't draw the table, right? Because the camera's in too close yeah, and it's, it's too close. straight on. And then on the final page, the next page, blood comes in the doorway. We're looking past um, Destro, younger Destro and, and Armada. And then we see again, two of these four international people who are maybe going to buy the technology. And Caldwell has the camera very close to them and straight on. And there's no backseat or seats. There's no table. So I think they're at a table because it feels like the logic of the scene. And then in the smallest panel possible on this page, yeah. like yes, he does show it, but this doesn't this doesn't break the story, but it it makes me work for the story. And reading comics like this should be should be sort of effortless, you know? Like the information should all be presented for me. I do think, okay, so then to a nice thing. I think this final bit, right, uh, where Armada says, we also felt you deserve to know exactly who killed you because no one else ever will. That's cool. That is a, that's a fun, mean, pessimistic, villainous turn for this ending. And I, you know, ending a 12 page story is hard because there's so little real estate to establish a lot of characters and cover ground. And, and then you have this slightly bigger panel of Wraith, but (sighs) Caldwell is so close in i can't see wraith's hands so i don't actually know if he's holding guns or like i don't know like a a giant like tool or a drill or like two cylinders like yes clearly the logic of this story panel is that he's about to uh shoot them or chop them up or smash them or something but let's pretend everyone that um wraith could oh i don't know shoot blades out of his wrists. It's it's not like that's on the cover of this variation. So that's certainly that's certainly not it. Like if this was like a Wolverine or a Sabretooth story, Wolverine that turned evil, this is the panel where Wolverine isn't just cropped at the wrist, but he like holds his hand up and his his claws pop out and the sound effect is like snicked, right? Yeah, you're going to see the weapon. And then, right, so wh- again, whether or not Wraith is doing it with guns or with blades or like fists, if it's fists, then the second to last panel should be his fists like out. Two dukes. Yeah. And then the final panel, they should be like closer up. Like, he, you know, put up your dukes, like I'm going to punch you. And then lastly, I know it hasn't been established in the story and how his um, costume works. And this may be too much like Megatron ending a season one episode of Transformers from 1984. But I kind of feel like this final panel, Wraith's eyes should be glowing red. Because what if there was blood splashed on his helmet? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Watchmen-style blood splatter on the eye. Whichever it is, there isn't enough of a change from the second-to-last panel yeah. to the last panel. Like, if this was a movie, you'd have a sound effect or, like, a musical sting. And since this is a comic book, you could have a sound effect, like, snicked or blam or yeah or no, no. Yeah, yeah anything. But instead... The change from the second to last panel to the final panel is underwritten and underdrawn. So I like the ending to the story, but it stumbles in the final panel because it's like, wait, is this is this like the close up on his eyes and he's starting to regret that he's a killer? Should should he be <laughs> frowning? Should like should the lenses of his circular eyes like have an angle so he's frowning? Or it's it's like a menacing close up of the yeah. eye, just like in that episode of The Simpsons where they go to Australia and I think there's a close up of a menacing koala. I'm pretty sure that what you're, <laughs> right, but like surely what you're describing has a little musical sting. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's to, no to music. Da, 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 I will say that I think he, the weapons that he's deploying are forearm mounted quick lock weapons platforms deploying electronic forearm cam- canners that fire a three shot burst in just one five hundredth of a second. Just okay. You know, so feeling, we all right. So uh, lis- listeners, Mark's referring to the previous page where we see a close up of. Uh, Wraith's wrists as Armada is describing to these four investors, Zoros. right? But but in terms of continuity, the the wrist gun that Caldwell draws on the second to last page doesn't quite look like the wrist guns Mm-mm. on the last page. They look bigger and less detailed. They look more like sort of a machine gun that he's holding than anyway. So anyway. these last uh, couple pages, I think he spent a day or two at Extreme Studios. Hmm. So uh, drawing those life out guns and no hands and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so my comment here is that um, in terms of scripting, the end of the story is great. In terms of storytelling, and I mean like layout, pencils, lettering, color, the final two panels um, are a little bit of a misstep for me, and I, I don't get the full effect because I'm a little confused. I'm curious where where this is going forward so i mean from from this story it it at least seems to be that wraith is firmly in destro's camp now Mm -hmm. right so he's if not necessarily an iron grenadier himself he's uh he's definitely in that that group right he's no longer or wouldn't be considered going forward a mercenary right i mean he's he's basically on destro's payroll seems to be seems to be the conclusion yeah, and I guess what did you think overall of as of this as an introduction of a new character? Is what did you think of Wraith overall? And would you be are you feeling excited about the prospect of him popping up uh, in future episodes or issues? The only thing that I didn't like about this story, as it you know fits in the in the wider or the bigger picture, is his suit. Like they make mention a couple times of oh he he stole it from the Chinese or or whatever. But that's it. Like we don't, we don't really get anything else uh, about it. Um, it's not anything that's, at least as far as I know, been mentioned or or hinted at or anything in in the the bigger story. Um, I I would have liked to have I'd like to have seen him gotten the suit. I don't know if we I don't know if we want that to be the introduction, but I feel like that's something that we we need to we need. And at, at some point is we need more info about where the suit came from, and you know because. It's like introducing a, a new, it's basically like wide marble make make mutants. Well, because they got tired of trying to figure out how people come up with their powers, you know. It's like, oh, here we just introduced this new guy. He's got a new suit. Well, where'd the suit come from? We haven't seen invisible technology so far in in well, GI Joe. There's, there's there's a line in the in the first chapter about how he stole it from the Chinese. And yeah, I think I think you know like battle android troopers and. Like Star Brigade, I think there are enough sort of technological enough, yeah. characters in GI Joe comics that don't get any more of an explanation than they just show up for the first time. I mean, I'm trying to remember: did Mindbender build the bats in issue 47 uh, or 46? Uh, something like that, right? Isn't it the one that you have that you got the cover for? That was their first appearance, wasn't it? The one with Lady J and um, the bat driving at her oh you can't expect me to know the issue just because i have the cover <laughs> uh I, i'm i'm really i'm really uh tossing a softball to mark to grab a uh a a, a, a hardbound 
collection of you, you don't you don't have to check the issue for us. But the idea here is that I actually think that this is enough origin. I would I yeah. would love to I'd love to know more. I think this is enough origin. And um, to answer Mark's question, like, how do you feel about this character? Would you like to see more of it? To my surprise, because I'm always ready to frown at Devil's Due decisions. I like this character. I like the story. Uh, I, I, I'm interested in this character doing more. And uh, I was always grumpy uh, 15 years ago when like Kamakura, when a Devil's hmm. Due character that I didn't find fully legitimate got a Hasbro action figure. Now I'm okay with there being a Wraith figure because this is this is pretty cool. Caldwell is not experienced enough to pull off the storytelling in this story, but it's it's still an exciting story and and I think it's a good escalation of the the three-sided conflict of GI Joe, you know, mm-hmm. how how involved is Destro and you know, I'm, I thought I would say something like, no, 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 focus more on Mindbender. Or, you know, no, no, no. What about guys like Copperhead and Scrap Iron that we haven't seen? Uh, particularly since the the rest of issue 33, right, which we talked about in a, in a previous episode, right? Hawk having this dream hallucination for the whole issue, right? That is an unusual G.I. Joe story in 18 pages. And then this Wraith back up chapter three, particularly as the rest of issue 33. Um, is a more standard G.I. Joe story. But yeah, it's going to be... I, how, how about this? If, if you're looking for me to be negative on something, I'm always, I'm always ready to be negative. <laughs> no, we well, seeing as how we've asked the question... <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm always ready for me to be... Um, I, so, okay, so is, is this costume that Talent Caldwell designed, and so far in the comics, only he and Michael Turner have drawn it, is this a costume which will lose a lot of its coolness factor if an artist who doesn't draw as cool draws this costume. I think there's that danger. Mm. Uh, I'm going to say it depends on the artist. Think uh, about yes. somebody like Chris Somney doing it. That'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, Chris Somney drawing anything. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's a, that's a perfect example though, because he's, his style is less is more. And he got, that goes back to what I was saying in the previous episode about uh, Al Williamson and, and artists that use that draw to create a complete image themselves rather than draw to create something that moves to the next person. Yeah. Chris Somney is, is doing a lot of Alex Toth. He's mm-hmm. dealing with design, shape, form, and shadow. In addition to like anatomy, storytelling and facial yeah. expressions and acting. Whereas talent Caldwell is drawing detail. He's drawing cool. He's drawing awesome. And storytelling is secondary. And uh, you know, acting and and perspective and backgrounds are secondary. It's it's. I'm all for unfair comparisons. It's not a fair comparison. Chris 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 Somney is like no. a, is a professional and a master. And at this point in his career, um, Caldwell is just starting. Yeah, and that's a that you know that's what we've always said about Seeley too. We, we're you know we bless him a lot, but we've also said that he's very very new at this time, and it just comes down to. Really, it's a Hasbro thing. It's like, shouldn't Hasbro have had the oversight to say, look, this is G.I. Joe. You know, you need to get a a, a guy that's ready, you know, rather than oh, let's, you know, put put a new guy on here. We want we want the best book, best looking book we can get. Um, but I'm not going to fault. I'm not going to fault uh, Caldwell for that at all. Hell no. If I was given the chance, I'd have probably 
done it too, and it'll look much worse. <laughs> it would have, yeah. I, I mean, I, like I said, back when we talked about Blaylock getting a license in the first place, just the whole process and everything about how this all came came together was just somebody being ballsy and taking the chance and 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 doing it. And it's like, yeah, man, do it. You know, instead of sitting around and saying, "Oh, I would have done it this way," he it went for it. You know, whether we like the results or not. Uh, but we, we more or less do. So, yeah, some something that would be fun uh, because a few times an artist drew G.I. Joe and then many years later they drew G.I. Joe again. So, hmm. you know, Rod, Rod Wiggum drew issues in the 30s and then he came back for 116, 117, 118. And then, you know, Steve Kurth drew uh, the first four issues for Devil's Due and I'm on record as saying I don't love them. But then he came back many years later and did some issues for IDW that showed tremendous improvement. So, you know, if Talon Caldwell, different continuity or hell, you know, bring Wraith into the Larry Hama Real American Hero continuity. It would be fun to see. It's like, okay, how how has his stuff changed in the intervening 16 years? 30 years, yeah. (laughs) No, <laughs> quick math, Seven, quick math. 75 years also for <laughs> listeners who don't know who chris somni is uh he drew amazing daredevil comics with, with mark, mark wade. wade and he's currently drawing and i think co-owns uh fire power, fire power? with robert mm-hmm. kirkman at skybound which is basically uh iron it's kirkman doing iron fist mm. and a great all ages comic is it called joanna and jonna jonna Yes, and, and possible you. monsters. Yeah, Somni writes with his wife and draws himself. Uh, same colorist as Firepower, Matt Wilson. Oh, wow, uh, I didn't for, even know about that. For Oni, Oni Press, I think they're mm-hmm. up to issue 10 now. Uh, this great book called Jana and the Unpossible Monsters, which uh, sort of feels like sort of feels like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon in the 70s if it was about like uh, sort of a cave girl and dinosaurs but did you sister, say he draws that yeah he 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 owns it co-writes it draws it somebody's doing checking that out uh somebody's doing two books right now uh, wow. I, I i give it to my niece to read and she's she's in kindergarten she just cool. looks at the pictures it's so gorgeous yeah he's great uh, he should definitely draw G.I. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's yep. done a couple of limited uh, yeah, commissions. There are a couple of examples on there, out there on online, I think. I think there's a um, Firefly and a Major Blood, if I'm remembering correctly. I'll have to track those down. Out there, but um, yeah, check, check, have a, do a Google. Um, they're out there. So, Mark, let's turn the question on you. I think you've read ahead from this story. Do you like Wraith? Do you want to see more? Um, I'm not, I'm a bit, I'm a bit torn. I'm not sure. There's something, there's something that I can't quite put my finger on, Wraith, that makes me think, is that really G.I. Joe? Is it a bit somehow just slightly off mm. what I would consider G.I. Joe? And I find it hard to put my finger on exactly what It's that like the accelerator factors. suits in the Rise of mm, Cobra. Yeah. Yeah. The it, technology is a step too far. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah perhaps. Too and, much. It's like Joes don't need accelerator suits. They're Joes. There's, there is a comics trope where you kind of introduce a character and they're super bad and they're, they're you know, the biggest badass ever, but then they join yeah. a wider team and you can't have everyone being the biggest badass in the world ever. Um, and they kind of just sort of their, the level of their threats just slowly diminishes and never quite lives up to sort of the original intent or the intro or whatever. I'm thinking of the likes of, is it Prometheus? 
in um, Batman, um, who, oh, who I think uh, doesn't look too too off versus race. First appeared in JLA. Yeah, is this the, is this the Grant wiped out the character? whole team? Exactly. I was thinking in in your in your concept there. I was thinking of Wolverine joining the X Men. Wolverine is much deadlier and more interesting as a solo character, but with the X Men, you get all those good dynamics. But he's sure going to kill a lot less. Well, when you talked about putting all your badasses on one team, first thing that popped to mind for me was the X-Force team that they did a few years ago that had Wolverine and Psylocke and Archangel. And that was the whole point of the book was just these are the most violent characters and they're going to kill more people than in the other. (laughs) Seriously, that's practically what they said in the the advertising text. And it's like, okay, the Rick Remender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uncanny X-Force. Yeah, it's, it, yep. but specifically that I guess that Prometheus example where introduced as the ultimate badass by Grant Morrison takes out mm-hmm. the entire Justice League uh, on his own, but then you know subsequent appearances using Batman's plans. Yeah, never quite living up to to that same level of of threat. Um, I wonder if you know to to what extent Wraith remains uh, a threat uh, as the story progresses, or whether they kind of forget about him or he <laughs> he kind of disappears into the background <laughs> well i wonder i have not read ahead but i know that the series wraps up at issue 40 something 42 43 i think and then relaunches relaunches with a, a slightly renewed focus and so i'm going to guess we're not going to see much of wraith mm. because the story is going to have to uh, drop him. Whether whether Jerwa thinks he wrote himself into a corner or he needs to get back to the main stuff. But, you know, sort of in the timeline, thinking back to our interview with Jerwa, maybe I should say our first interview with Jerwa, because if someone's listening to this episode years later, we might have done a second and third by then. Mm-hmm. But at this well, we point... We, we have done, <laughs> we have done mm-hmm. a second, Tim. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 we... <laughs> Right. He, uh, sorry. We we did an interview. Brandon loved the abuse so much he came back. No, no, no. For no, another no. round. No, no. He he came back and we talked about a specific issue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was a guest twice. I think of the first one as as really a meaty interview. But looking on the inside back cover of this third issue of the Phantom Backup Story, uh, it is an ad for GI Joe Reloaded number seven. Mm. So in the timeline of Devils Do cranking out G.I. Joe comics, the focus is starting to drift from the main book to the relaunched book that's more like Ultimate G.I. Joe, the way that like Ultimate Comics at Marvel was was a relaunch. But knowing that Reloaded only went to about issue 17, this is halfway through that run. And so, yes, looking ahead, knowing the book's going to, the main book's going to wrap up in about 10 issues, uh, I can foresee... Uh, not much of Wraith uh, going forward. Oh, it might, let's um, let's as well sort of pause to to just note as well that Wraith became one of the few characters originated from the pages of the GI Joe comics, which then made their way into becoming a figure in their own right. There's a there was a, a few, so he joins the ranks of Kamakura, Stealth Suit, Spirit, and. Um, Hannibal, the no, the the Serpentor clone, and and a, a oh, yeah. couple of others. So, but so Wraith was released about that figure. in uh, two thousand and eight under the name Mercenary Wraith, 
with a far card very much kind of aligned to, to kind of this introduction that we've seen here and was also released as a variant in a sort of translucent blue sort of mirroring kind of you know that camouflage tech uh, and pop fact wraith co-creator brandon jerwa was never sent a figure <laughs> So I think uh, I think he said his his mum found one. No, his yeah, some yeah. I think a relative found one and was able to <laughs> buy it and send it to him. But yeah, and yet we've still not gotten a Don Marino mm. action figure. Yeah, there's a character with lots of appeal and appearances, and I think fans. I almost bet that we'll get a classified figure because if they made Kamakura. Yeah. yeah, it's got to be know, a matter. I, of time. I feel like they've they've almost got to make a, a dawn. Yes, this this will what, be the whatever year. people think about the character. I don't. I, I've never read. I think I read a few issues really of the Snake Hunt, but it, you know, I've, so I really don't care. I think it, I like the design. Yeah, uh, the I like the look. I don't like the fact that she's what she is, but whatever. Uh, I'd buy a figure because I think it's cool looking. This isn't quite an I Spy, but um, GI Joe related. Since I'm holding these three. Devil's Due issues, not the not the collection, not reading them online. The Devil's Due news page, the, the page at the end of the book that has some text about other Devil's Due things happening and all the comics and graphic novels coming out that month and the next month. In issue 33, uh, there's a column and it's called No Joe. And it says, Kids love G.I. Joe figures. Unfortunately, those same kids later grow into demented pre-teens who enjoy seeing what Duke looks like on fire. Since the Geneva Convention doesn't yet punish crimes against plastic toys, some of us at D.D. would like to repent for the sins of our youth by answering the question, what's the worst torture you've ever done to a G.I. Joe? So uh, Chris Crank, uh, Devil's Due webmaster, uh, Brian Hay, uh, the writer of this news page tim seeley artist of gi joe and writer of hack slash and josh blaylock all chime in uh, answers answers range from we tied our joes to uh, rocket engines uh, melting parts of them by a lamp <clears throat> uh, i did not ruin my gi joe action figures and That's at the Brandon. end at the at the end uh, blaylock says um I was one of the good kids that didn't blow them up. They just sort of magically disappeared one by one. And now I know my little twerp friends were lifting them from my house for their own collections all along. One day I'll have my revenge. One day. So we can't leave it on, on that. So you you two, what, um, what, what did you do to your figures? Did any of your figures ever suffer a uh, terrible fate? Probably the worst thing I did was turn one of them into a Punisher figure. Okay. <laughs> Which figure? I did. A, I, I don't remember which one it was. I think that I used. I don't remember who I whose head I used, but there was. It was a flat. The chest was was one of the, the few that didn't have anything on it because it was a just a completely smooth and it was black. And I painted a skull, you know, like the, the Punisher logo on it. And then uh, that was the only thing I remember. And then I had, but then I had uh, Han Solo from Return of the Jedi. Uh, indoor where he had the camouflage jacket and i put that jacket on him i remember that so it was like you know black pants and you could see the skull underneath the jacket but, i'm imagining uh, a a lopsided uh m messy punisher <laughs> skull painted on with um like a whiteout like a liquid paper brush you know it's kind of like try to find it sticky i'm sure it wasn't that bad <laughs> not, I, i'm imagining it's charmingly terrible 
<laughs> that's um my i'll take my, that <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna save a little specificity of this for later because i might blog about it one day but my brother and i on two occasions experimented with uh fire and a hammer um, <laughs> uh, wow three i think three joe figures each and we realized we didn't like it it, it felt bad so we, <laughs> we never we never did it again and and it was on Figures that we uh, weren't using much. Okay. I, th- I think for me, it was only limited to characters that maybe I ended up with a duplicate of and weren't like army builders. So, for example, I think I had two buzzers. And so I thought it'd be interesting to try and create a different character out of one of those buzzers. And we had some Playmobil um, characters, which um, came as a kind of design your own character set. So it came with like permanent these special permanent markers which were for drawing on plastic uh, so i sort of drew a few sort of extra features onto him i think i drew his hair brown chopped off his ponytail made his sunglasses a different color maybe drawn a scar it turned out very ugly <laughs> not, not a good modification at <laughs> like, all but like like jay's punisher logo yeah. i'm sure yeah i'll have to try to track that down i may still have it somewhere i'm Perfect. sure i do yeah, generally very, take a f- very respectful of, uh, of my figures. Oh, if I, I find it, it's going up for sure. I should it's say, sure. um, when I have heard stories, sort of then as a kid and and since then, of people blowing up their Joes, it, it makes me sad. <laughs> like, you can do whatever you want to your stuff, but, oh, geez, don't do that, you know? <laughs> it's like you'd never, like, put chewing gum in your Nintendo cartridge, you know? Like, I understand that... someone dis- else's. <sighs> I understand. <laughs> I understand the destructive impulse, um, but GI Joe is so awesome. Don't don't ruin your figures. Mm. Tell a story with them. Hey, Mark, tell us about trying to remove the backpack from one of those talking battle commanders. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the talking battle commanders. Uh, they had came with these ridiculous backpacks, which uh, which were screwed onto them. And I think there must have been a, been a way of actually accessing the screws and unscrewing them and to take them off mm-hmm. the the back. Uh, but uh, as a young a young <laughs> young child <laughs> at an age you probably should have known better, uh, I didn't work out that you could actually remove them uh, from the back in a con- more conventional way. What I non destructive way. What I did instead was to take a hacksaw. And saw the backpack <laughs> off of uh, Hawk to to give myself a a hook with a very flat back. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I think the backpack was largely intact. I think it was probably still usable. Um, but I think we ended up yeah putting a coat on that figure most of the time whenever we. <laughs> <laughs> Peter mentioned that on, yeah. on Facebook. I thought it was funny. Uh, at the moment, I'm blanking on uh, Hawk's dialogue, but I often think often sometimes I think of um, Stalker's dialogue. Blitz him. Blitz him. Blitz him. <laughs> oh, Eat yeah. Lead Cobra. Eat Lead Cobra. Blitz him. Let's party. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. All right. Let's party indeed. <laughs> party on, Hawk. Uh, okay. I d- should we? Should, I think we're done with uh, talking about this this story now. Um, any? Do, do, do we do we score this? Is it fair to score it? I, th- I, think I we say do. we score it. Yo, yo, cola, not grape soda. It's yo, Joe, time. time. 
this is this is difficult. What Tim, you go first. Five. Um, it's good. Uh, the story is good. Uh, the art is exciting. The art is not. The storytelling isn't there yet. It's all a little rushed and cramped, but it's it's different and it it introduces a character in a in an in interesting way. And Jurua makes great use of so few pages. So uh, not not a five with a frown, <laughs> but a five. Okay, I'll go in six and a half. It's fine. Yeah, the the arts, you know, quite pleasing in parts. Maybe it's not the necessarily the the style that I'm naturally drawn towards. Um, they do an awful lot in the the you know the three sets of four pages that they have, and yeah, I'm interested to see what they do with Wraith next. Um, yeah, there you go. Okay, six five is a good rating. You know, I was bordering between six and seven, uh, but I gave the last issue. Or, you know, issue 33, um, a seven. It was more, you know, focused on the Joes and, and it was a different feel. This I really liked. I really did. Uh, but yeah, I think, six, oh, hell, let's go seven. Very good. Cool. So that was Wraith uh, Phantom backup from uh, the pages of Devil's Due 31 through to 33. Uh, Wait, I have a question. Oh. Uh, is is Phantom spelled with an F or a PH? Uh, is that a, here it's is that a, F, isn't it? Is this a stylistic choice? Is that a is that like let's an, hope so? And an anachronism or an Americanism? Hmm. I'm, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to MiriamWebster.com, which is my my go to for for if a word exists and also how it's spelled. And I'm gonna type in Phantom. Maybe they spelled it like that because of Fathom. Not. And they want to subconsciously draw that. Oh, connection. okay. All right, it is a variant of Phantom with a PH. Hmm. So I, I don't think it's out of date. I think it's I think it's much less used. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Okay. Yes, yeah, so next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at the Brandon Joa era of G.I. Joe with issues 34 and 35, the Bad Moon Rising arc. And over on the regular ARA show, we will continue to cover those as the issues come out, progressing through the latest arc, High Stakes. Where can people find you, Jay? Breakroom Sketches on Facebook. And where can people find you, Tim? Hub Comics is a brick-and-mortar store in Somerville, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, and my blog is a realamericanbook.com. Very good. You can find more about the show over on talkingjoe.co.uk, which is the website. It has links to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and contact us uh, details too, which includes a little button where you can leave us a voice note of up to 90 seconds long so if you want to chip in with some feedback on what you think of wraith we can include that in a future episode we have also got links to patreon where richard sam jay bill christopher and justin are getting early access to content as well as some exclusives Uh, so i think that is us done but remember Nobody beats Talking Joe. A real American podcast.
featuring two Americans and one Englishman. Pip pip. <laughs> Later's. Cheerio. Thank you. And it was over one hour, 20 minutes, I think, in the end, talking about uh, 12 pages. A <laughs> 12-page story. Well, I, I, had to, I had to explain a lot about Danny Mickey. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to go, objection, relevance. And then, and then Jay says, I want to see how this plays out. <laughs> <laughs>